Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. They said it could never happen, but yes, Thea and I are back together, somehow not on holiday and enjoying this heatwave despite her rock star haircut is Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. <laughs> are you enjoying this hot weather? I am still enjoying it, yeah. It's not too much. Well, I, I was in Italy at the weekend and um, it was much hotter there. It was 37 and a half degrees it. at one they point. They can handle it, can't they? Well, you say that, but we were working in the fields <laughs> from 8 in the morning till 8 at night. We genuinely were. Why were you doing that? We were, um, it was my aunt and uncle's 25th wedding anniversary, so we were having a massive family party. That's 120 not... people, so we took delivery of tables, put them all out. Oh, so you actually were working? Oh, you, yeah, you... no, I was. I was gathering flowers in fields. Oh, my it was God, intense. it sounds a bit bertolucci <laughs> It was, it was very much so, yeah. Well, it was a good, good, good party. Exhausting fun. Yeah. And worth it in the end. Yeah. That's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> oh, we're going to talk to someone later on in Japan where it's even hotter. So there will, be a, there will be a theme running through this show. Make sure you are subscribing to this podcast and to the TLS, which really is a lovely paper and well worth reading. On this week's show, we're going to introduce you to someone claimed to be the greatest novelist of modern Japan. And it's not Murakami. Yes, it's Sozeki, who was writing at the beginning of the 20th century, including the novel I Am a Cat. Eri Hotter has the details. Fancy a bit of LSD, anyone? The therapeutic benefits of psychedelics are now much in vogue. You might recall Lucy Dallas's interview with Michael Pollan on the subject in June this year on this very podcast. Well, Toby Lichtig has now reviewed an acid memoir and can tell us the current thinking. And we'll think about feminist publishing with the history of Virago. Has it blazed a trail and is there no longer much to worry about in terms of publishing phallocentrism? Kate Chisholm can tell us. I was always somewhat put off by the idea of LSD, its capacity to alter perception, to distort reality, to be a force of destabilising uncertainty. It seemed to me to be more terrifying than tempting. But LSD, as with some other drugs, seems to be staging a reputational rehabilitation. Galen Strawson this week reviews Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, which offers an account of the science behind and his views of the benefits of this mind-expanding, mind-revealing drug. 
of course, one challenge in any reconsideration is a linguistic and descriptive one. Psychedelic by now immediately conjures images of day-glow colours, grubby 60s self-indulgence and hippie blather. And the search to describe the sensation of being high takes in all sorts of off-putting pseudo-religious waffle of the transcendent blissful variety. Strawson finds this as one conclusion in response. There's an extraordinary degree of agreement on the part of those who have successful trips under suitably controlled conditions that the fundamental principle of reality is love. Perhaps psychedelic drugs offer no more than a version of that great post-Edenic ideal, a return to innocence, to the unfiltered pleasures of youth. Children, according to one theory, are basically tripping all the time. It's only inhibited adults that have need of artificial assistance to try. One such adult is the novelist Tao Lin, whose book Trip is reviewed by our fiction editor Toby Lishtig this week. The latter notes that we now live in a golden age of illegal drug taking. The London Times even ran an article recently with this chintzy headline, Is LSD the new middle class dinner party treat? Sounds awful. Lin is apparently strong on the legal mess of drug prevention, but less appealing when his gaze turns inward. As Toby says, drug experience is so particular and in the moment that, much like sex, it's hard to write about well. The problem with those who proselytise about the benefits of drugs is not their roguish attraction, but their entitled solipsism. If we are to reconsider first principles about psychedelics and drugs more generally, there's perhaps work to be done in the realms of language and artistry as well as science. Want to talk about all that. Toby's here in the studio, looking fairly blissed out. Peace and love. Peace and love. <laughs> uh, cards on the table then, everyone. Who wants to share their experiences with LSD to kick us off? Thea. So, so gentle. Yeah, yeah no, well, no, no, after you. Yeah. I've never had it. I'm scared of it. I'm genuinely scared of it. I find, and actually I find this whole issue fascinating because the notion of being out of control in my mind is so terrifying. I always look to LSD as... Madden, you know, connecting mm. it with madness and and, yeah. and and not just bad trips, just the idea of being so lacking in control it could co- cause damage. The idea of seeing things that aren't perhaps there. Yeah. Or, or of discovering things in the depths of your own that soul that are there, the, the darknesses or, or something. Yeah, I mean, same, Without being same rationally as you. controlled. Yeah, same as you. Well, people talk about, I know hallucinations are a very small part, they're not that common, but talk about seeing people who have died and, and confronting them and things like that, which petrifies me even yeah. though... There's no one, you know, who's died who I would, you know, it just, it would, I think it would mess, mess with my mind. And the idea of not being able to get back, Toby, I always find that about it. It feels like it has the power to change things. And my therefore, sense, you could, my sense is that's entirely overinflated there. And there have been various scare stories over the year to, you know, trips that you never come back from or whatever. Yeah. And I, they, you know, the average trip tends to last about 12 hours, which is a commitment. But the afterglow can last for six weeks. The afterglow so, can, yeah. But also, you know, the, I, I guess like a, like a session of psychotherapy, the, mm. the things that it brings up may last for a very long time. Yeah, but, but I don't can, want to be out of control for 12 hours ever, I don't think. But is I, it out of control? I wouldn't necessarily say it's out of control. I mean, for my own experience it's to it, it's it's to do with detail a lot of it's to do with detail seeing things that that you wouldn't necessarily notice in your normal life because you're too busy thinking about all the other things and you're too ego led so whether it's you know on a very basic level appreciating music in a certain way because you're just completely plugged into it or or, or art or really 
confronting some of the very difficult things about existence, like people you may have lost and, and, and your, your own mortality. This all has to do with the, the set and setting thing. That's something that people say again and again Absolutely. when discussing LSD. Absolutely. So yes, the idea that it's a middle class uh, dinner party drug seems quite bizarre and, and, and vile to me in many ways as well, because, because you, know, you wouldn't want to sit around with 15 people eating chicken. Talking and about Brexit. Out. Talking about Brexit, no. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, de- too much. it's definitely something you want to do. <laughs> Brexit on LSD. I mean, oh, there, 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 there is sort of the two channels. One, obviously, scientifically, if we're talking about psychotherapy um, or psychiatry, yes, you want to be guided by people who are, you know, medical pra- practitioners and uh, who know what they're doing. But also, if you're doing it in a more recreational way, and I, I think recreational is possibly the wrong word because it's, it conjures up ideas of hedonism, whereas in fact when it comes to mood enhancement and, and experience, it's not necessarily just about you know having fun. Um, but you definitely want to do that with someone who has done it before, knows what they're doing and can guide you really. Compared with something like taking peyote or something like that, you would normally have someone who is you know, almost like a shaman who, who accompanies you through the thing. But people don't really talk about that when they talk about LSD. They don't really talk about. They don't, and perhaps you know, perhaps they, perhaps they should, and perhaps you know, again, it's 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 something that's been very much out of um, sort of the popular consciousness for a while, apart from jokes about tie dye and you know, look back to the sixties <laughs> or whatever. But perhaps but if it, it does, does have actually that become... cultural baggage. So unquestionably, as you mm. say, oh, LSD. Yeah, absolutely, it, I it, think of drifters in San Francisco who took one trip in 1969 and never came back. But that is largely to do with the war on drugs, which sort of began in the late 60s and which stigmatised particularly acid, um, which you know, was deemed extremely fearful by, by Nixon and the establishment. And, and there have been so many scare stories about acid that, that aren't necessarily... Uh, based in fact. I'm not saying that people have never had a bad trip and I'm not saying that, you know, there are lots of studies to show that there is no link between psychosis and LSD use. That's also debatable and I'm sure it's possible to prove that schizophrenia has been brought on by it in certain cases. That's hard to tell um, you know, whether it would have happened anyway. So I'm not saying LSD is never bad for you or that everyone should take it or whatever, but the, the, the scare stories have been overinflated and that correlated with that kind of, sort of 60s hippie culture has, has given it a very bad reputation. It's that great years. statistic you gave, which is the drug harm score. Yeah. yeah. Which I'd never heard of. Can yeah. you explain what that is? Yeah, so they're, um, I don't exactly know exactly on which metrics they um, base no, it on. They do. Exactly well, how they do it. You've got the number. I've, the I've got the numbers, yeah. So, so, so um, it's the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs. They gave LSD a harm score of 7 out of 100, 100 being very bad and 0 being absolutely fine. Um, by the same measures, alcohol score 72. And one of the things about LSD is it, it is... It's, it's it's essentially non-toxic. It doesn't have any impact on your cardiovascular system. So a drug, you know, forget heroin or whatever, but a drug like ecstasy, which you know, really does set your heart rate going and can induce various physical symptoms. LSD doesn't really have an effect on, on the body. Now, yes, it may or may not cause bad mental effects in, in certain people, but it, it, it's basically not ha- non-harmful. And there's an argument that no-one has ever died. And it's non-addictive. And, and it's completely non-addictive. I mean, I think uh, Michael Pollan said in the, in, the, in the podcast with Lucy a few weeks ago, he said, you know, when you, when you come out of a sort of 12-hour acid trip, your first thought is not, when can I do this again, but 
do I ever have to do this again? <laughs> really? Yeah. So what are we envisaging? I think that'd be useful to know that this, the respectable, the, the increasing respectable nature of LSD seems to be an accepted fact. What is the end game here? Is it that this should be used recreationally and legally, or is it that actually it should be used by therapists as a tool to enable people with various mental health issues to, to, to seek help? In short, both. I think the most important thing is the scientific aspect of it because it really does seem to have a, a fantastic effect on anxiety and depression. This idea of love. It was interesting that the one relic of the 60s cliché, Summer of Love, is still there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's The outcome is love. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so w- whether it's the kind of that sense of love and and sort of oneness with the world that, that an, an acceptance that that people in the throes of terminal illness can feel when 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 given lsd during therapy or more recreationally a, a sense of oneness with the world and fellow feeling I, I think i think both are very very valid i mean the the, the scientific aspect is, is more important to humanity i mean we're living in it's, it's a cliche but we're living in the, mid, the middle of a mental health epidemic. You know, levels of depression are soaring, levels of suicide are soaring in the, in the Western world. And we also recognise mental health issues. And recognise it, yeah, so, so the reporting has gone up. The reporting has gone up, absolutely. But there, you know, there is, exactly, there's a recognised problem and antidepressants don't seem to be adequately dealing with it. And if, if it proves to be the case that LSD can help, then great. Secondly, on a more recreational level, I think, it, I think when taken in the right conditions and sensibly, it can be a very, very life-affirming and, you know, perception-opening thing. On the, on the medical side of things, so it's interesting because that this is how it started. It started, obviously, in labs with people looking to solve things, to isolate what it is that LSD can absolutely. do for after us to make life ac- better. After it was accidentally discovered, Ingested. absolutely. Yeah, um, and, and then, obviously, it's, it, was, it was stopped. They stopped the research into that. And you were saying about the war on drugs. It's interesting how people were on side, the media was on side for so long, I think. Time magazine, I think, yeah. only turned against... It was sort of in 1965 or something. 1965 or something like yeah. that. Before that, they were really supportive of, its, of, of us exploring how it could help us medically. Why has it taken so long for it to come yeah. back round? It's a, it's a very good question. I think, I think the war on drugs was extremely effective, is, mm. is, is a short answer. Well, it and might then, have worked, theoretically, as well. It's only now, really, that the war on drugs has, has failed year after year after year after year. Yeah. So some but financially, there's so much more at stake now because big pharma are, are you know, have all of these drugs that are supposed to help us fight depression, which aren't, aren't, which aren't, aren't working, working. But and I think there there are sort of there are two reasons for its rehabilitation. One, which is which is the sort of the bigger one, and the kind of more slow burning one, has been that since the, the 90s. And Michael Pollan talks about this in his book. There were a group of researchers who basically took it upon themselves to rehabilitate it and start using it more in, in um, trials. Um, I think, you know, there were maybe only 20 or 30 of them. They just, they just decided to jump, you know, to, 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 to rehabilitate it. And that gained traction gradually. And there was this big conference in 2008 to celebrate the centenary of Al- Alfred Hoffman, who, who discovered LSD, and he was still alive at the time. And that also helped to bring about a renewed scientific interest. And, and then, he apparently was taking it for the, la- oh, yeah. the last decades of his he life, in his microdosing. 90s. He took it, he microdosed in his 90s. Why does microdosing work? Is that, that's not homeopathy idea that you have such small amounts, no one can realise why it does stuff. It no, is. and I don't, know, I don't know how well it has been researched scientifically, but it, it, does, it does really seem to have a benefit as, a, as an antidepressant if you take these tiny amounts of every two or three days. It's the hangover here, because I, I often talk about drug legalization and it seems to me that my starting point is it's not morally wrong for people to want to get high and it seems for lsd to be rehabilitated that argument has to be accepted because at the minute every time you mention drugs there is this very conservative small c reaction which is 
it must be bad because it's somehow wrong. That's just sim- simply not a to want um, to get viewpoint high. that I subscribe to. But no, it's interesting that, no. that is an embedded cultural absolutely, viewpoint, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. But you know, we're, we're, we're massive hypocrites. You know, we've decided that alcohol's fine, and we've decided that you know, smoking you, cigarettes, smoking cigarettes is fine, and various other things that, that are clearly bad for you. Yeah, well, also we harmful are fine because we say that they're not. I mean, they exist and they're they're legal, but we don't think they're fine. Okay, well then, you know, maybe there's a continuum, but we're definitely hypocrites about it. I mean, yeah. the, the same people who might brag about their alcohol consumption will think that acid is a terrible thing for you. But then, so along with the scientific research, you've got the dark web, which I talk about in my piece, the dark net, and it's just it's made acid, for example, a lot easier to buy. I mean, I don't know when I was growing up, that that you could get acid in school perhaps and whatever, but it, it didn't. It, it was never a very good street drug. It doesn't really no. it doesn't really sell very well, you know. As we said, it's non-addictive. It's, it doesn't, you know, it's very it's cheap, cheap well, incredibly yeah. cheap. You don't come back for loads of it. So, yeah. what's the point in selling it? But so it, it, it wasn't particularly easy to get hold of. But because you can get hold of anything on the dark net. But is is the stuff that you buy there? Do we know that that's safe? You know, well, in inverted commas, is it? Is it? Cu- can it be cut with things in the same way as? Other drugs can be cut with it. I, I mean, t- technically yes, but I don't know. I don't know how you would particularly um, cut a tab with anything because it's mm. just a big blotter soaked in water, and it's, it's either the thing itself or, or not really. I mean, it's so we cheap. You could soak it in something you else. You could, but it's well, you, you could soak it in something else. But it's not really about cutting. The reason why you cut cocaine is cocaine is expensive. No, I mean and you, lacing. Lacing, yeah, yes, absolutely. But but one of the joys of uh, you know the, the dark net, and there aren't very many of them because it's obviously a very very nasty place <laughs> where you can get hold of some very nasty things as well. Is that it's customer reviewed so mm. if you're a drugs <laughs> vendor who's selling stuff that's either terrible or, or doesn't have any effect or whatever you quickly go out of business uh, oh so very quick in a minute about uh, the book actually you've not mentioned that that you've read i like that interesting how you write about drugs but there's a great headline in the times this morning about the respectability of drugs now in colorado there is a correlation between cannabis usage and house prices going up <laughs> <laughs> so cannabis usage is higher in areas with higher house prices. So if anything's going to convince the Daily Mail yeah, that cannabis is... It feels like there is a bit of a global progress here because you're starting to get this idea well, it's legal in... Cannabis, to take an example, is legal now right. in California. It's, it's legal either for medical purposes or recreational in more states than it's illegal. Yeah. There does feel like there's a bit of a force, doesn't there? Absolutely. And they, they, there's Portugal, for example, which is not just about cannabis use, but, but various... Decriminalise Yeah, pretty much decriminalise everything. And that's been very successful. Um, let's talk about trip. Yes. Because how hard is it to write well about drugs, do you think? Pretty hard. Uh, this guy doesn't do it. No. Why really. is that? <laughs> um, he's an interesting writer, Taolin, and I've been a bit bit harsh about him in the piece. I think I think fairly, um, but his fiction's actually excellent, and he's very his his previous book, his previous novel at least, Taipei, um, is full of these disaffected, um, drug-addled characters, um, who he pokes fun at, allows us to empathise with as well. But he's got that kind of authorial distance, and that's why it really works. This is all about him. When, it, when it's not all about him, the book's actually very good. When he talks about various LSD proselytizers, Terence McKenna's one of them. He's interesting when he talks about the war on drugs. He's very interesting. He's a very clear, lucid writer. When he talks about his own experiences, he, he does just seem pretty narcissistic. And, and is that the, the problem with drugs? Like you, you parallel with sex, I thought it was a great parallel because it's, sex, everyone's kind of experienced it, but it's very self-centred. It's very self-centred and it's very in the moment as well. You know, it's not necessarily linguistically based. I mean, yes, of course, you can describe things that aren't linguistically based. But it becomes based, silly it's, very easy. It's it very becomes very easy. Exactly. And there's, a, I mean, it's just because there's, there's this bit in Trip where he 
gets high. I can't remember if it's DMT or LSD, and he he decides that he doesn't need his worldly goods, and he gets rid of his laptop. And then he comes to a few hours later and decides, of course, he needs his laptop, and he goes and buys another one. And it's kind of funny. That's that's quite a funny idea. But he writes about it in such an affectless way that he just sounds a bit spoiled, and it doesn't. that the kind narciss- of it sounds silly. And the narcissism sounds it sounds a bit ironic given that a big point of LSD and other psychedelics is to obliterate love, the ego. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I, if you read anyone writing about it, because the, the, the other is not being affectless, it's to be too affected. Too, so too you affected. end up with that sort of Norman Mailer when he was writing under the influence of drugs and about drugs where you sort of roll lots of words together and, mm. and, and you write spacily to try and convey spaciness and it's Absolutely. just kind of... I think with talent it's, it's a kind of affected affectlessness if that if that makes any sense. But yeah, you're absolutely right there. It's very interesting the idea that, that LSD is all about dissolving the ego and writing is quite an egocentric thing. So how do you... True that. How do you, <laughs> how do you write about dissolving the ego? I don't know. It, it has been done well. Does anyone do it well? Who, who, Chris, we've got to go, but who writes well about drugs? Um, well, got to have naked lunch. I mean, yeah, we can is obviously, yeah. you know, boringly enough, we're talking about Acid Huxley and Timothy Leary do write well about it. I trust Thompson? Um, yeah, I think... Hubert I, Selby Jr.? Yeah. These are all sorts of rite of passage right of bits yeah. Um, yeah, they all are. I We've mean, all read them. The <laughs> one that I read fairly recently, because I've only just caught up with the Edward St. Alban um, quintet, is um, the second one in that Bad News, which is just... It, the whole novel is just a set-piece drug spender, and it talks about... I mean, that's not about the joys of acid, that's about the, the absolute horrors, of the narcissistic horrors of consumption, uppers and downers and regulating mood, And but it's just... It's brilliant. One other book I'd quickly like to point out um, is this Russian book called Novel with Cocaine by a pseudonymous author called M. Agaev. I think it was written in the, in the late 1919, something like that. And it's brilliant, and it's very good on compulsion. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> this, this podcast is going to be full of... We've got I Am A Cat <laughs> coming, and then we've got this. That's brilliant. Go. Great recommendations. <laughs> Toby Lichtig, thank you very much indeed. Born in 1867 as Natsume Kinosuke, the writer who became known as Soseki was sent to London at the turn of the century as Japan's first Japanese literary scholar. He wasn't entirely happy over here, later calling his two-year stay the most miserable time of my life. But when he returned, he published to acclaim two novels in 1905, Botchan and I Am A Cat, the first of 15 he was to write. His career led him to become one of Japan's key national writers, his face adorning the 1,000 yen note until 2004. This week, Eri Hotter has reviewed John Nathan's biography of Soseki, which calls him modern Japan's greatest novelist. A large claim indeed, but does it stack up? Eri is on the line to tell us. Eri, hello. Hello. Um, let's, let's start with the subtitle. Uh, how far can you go along with the idea of uh, Soseki as the greatest in, in modern Japan? I think he's certainly one of the greatest. As far as my personal uh, taste is concerned, I think he really is the greatest in modern literature. I think he really embodied the kind of the pressure for modernization and westernization while sort of retaining a very Japanese character. He also tried to theorize literature in a way that nobody really in the world had done. So he was quite unique in that as well. And he was a Renaissance man. Um, he you know, wrote poetry, haiku poetry, he did calligraphy, he was ver- well-versed in uh, several different languages, including classical Chinese. I think he references quite a lot. And you know, I, as a reader, I don't think I can appreciate him with the uh, appreciation that he really deserves. But even then, I think he's just so enjoyable 
um, pleasurable. He's a pleasure to read, really. I mean, I saw someone on the train today reading Soseki. Really? Um, Yes, so he's very much alive (laughs) in uh, daily life in Tokyo. So what makes his novels so pleasurable to read, then? Actually, his biographer, um, Nathan, John Nathan, uh, whose book I reviewed, he actually emphasizes on the darker side of his... uh, Yeah, he calls him grim, doesn't he? Yes, and and it's true that you know he you know actually says that um, it's not possible to really understand other people. There's no sort of it's it's not possible to really have an understanding, real understanding, um, and let alone love. But I think in the end, I think he kind of laughs at it, and, and he just kind of sees life as kind of a comedy. And people who struggle even and, you know, cries over different things. I think he, he's very good at making fun of people, making fun of himself. That in the end, it's the kind of sense of humor and lightheartedness about everything that's so pleasurable. Um, is it useful for us to reference Dickens? Because there's a couple of things that make me think about he wrote for serially, um, he wrote serially for newspapers and you talk about his childhood being very formative for him in a kind of Dickensian fashion. Yes, uh, he was born to a fairly well-off uh, or the declining family of a hereditary magistrate in Edo, which is now Tokyo. So he was quite uh, lucky in that, but he was also the seventh of uh, the children, so the parents were kind of embarrassed about him, you know, having, having him at old age and also having too many children. So he was put up for adoption several times before he was returned finally to the original family. So that's Dickensian. He was also um, pockmarked. So physical scar that he endured was quite great. So I think he had, he had many complexes about growing up. Not necessarily to a poor family, but to people who didn't really appreciate him. And so presumably this, this humour, this self-deprecating humour that you mentioned, was part of his way of coping with all of that? Yeah, I, I think that was the only way probably to deal with it. And in, even in the darkest days that you talked about in London, where he locked himself up and tried to theorise about literature, you know, he was really willing to try everything. He tried bicycling and he really tried sort of you know, conversing with Christian ladies as well. So I, I think he really, I mean, despite his misanthropic sort of nature or kind of theme that you encounter in his books, I think he really liked to be engaged with communities and, you know, he, he liked, you know, being surrounded by people. Oh. I, love, I love this After idea all. that he should come to England and be told to cycle to cure his depression. <laughs> Just jump on a bike. <laughs> that would happen now, I think. <laughs> uh, before we leave him in London, t- do tell us about his flatmate Ikeda, because uh, that's, that's, a, that's, quite, a, oh, that's yeah. quite a a confluence of greatness, isn't it? Uh, in one flat in Clapham, I think. It is. His flatmate in the first year was called uh, Kikuna Ikeda, who is a chemist who studied in Leipzig. And he was on his way home via London. And he shared uh, a flat with Soseki for several months. And they engaged in quite a a lot of topics uh, discussing about Zen philosophy and aesthetics and education and so forth. Uh, He himself is a Renaissance man of sorts. So... It was a kind of meeting of minds. But Ikeda is actually the man who discovered the, the taste property of umami, which is 
deliciousness. Is, is mummy really an English word now? Yeah, <laughs> mummy no, means deliciousness or to, essence of taste. Yeah, to foodies called. like Thea, umami's yes. constantly, she never stops yes. talking about umami. <laughs> That's right. So it's not salty, it's not sweet, it's not sour, it's not bitter, it's just delicious. <laughs> but taken too much, um, you get sick. Basically, it's monosodium glutamate. I mean, people accused of Chinese food being uh, too much monosodium glutamate, and it was considered something bad, but it's actually naturally occurring property. Uh, Ikeda, uh, the chemist, actually extracted it from kelp and anchovies and uh, sugar cane, so it's actually organic. <laughs> and, he had an I- and he had an idea, Ikeda, which is relevant to uh, Soseki, which is that <laughs> you've got to find a way of getting good, tasty stuff to as wide a range of people, and Soseki, writing in a, in a good-selling newspaper, was trying to do the same thing with his literature, do you think? Absolutely. That, that's just my theory, but I think they really had a sort of meeting of minds there that they wanted to make available, you know, tasty things in life. And to Soseki, I think literature was something that should be tasty to many people, delicious to many people, even the heartaches and sorrows and tears. It could be savored and it could be laughed at even in the end if you kind of make a comedy out of it. So Kikuna Ikeda actually made a, a, a product out of this uh, deliciousness called Ajinomoto, which is MSG. And he was quite successful until he got kind of maligned in the 70s when uh, people started accusing it being kind of too chemical and too, yeah. too so talk- synthetic. Talking about um, the kind of the chemical synthesis of things, there's, there's something similar going on, it sounds like, in Suzuki's own writing. John Nathan describes his writing as synthesising Japanese sensibilities and Western approaches to the novel. I'm wondering if you can tell us what elements of each we would find in his work. What is it, what is it about the sensibilities that makes them particularly Japanese and, and what are the approaches that are particularly we- uh, Western? I think his approach to kind of dissecting everything and analysing, that was probably a very Western technique. But what he describes in his novels are quite Japanese, everyday life, quotidian life, people kind of disguising their feelings. But underneath, feelings are simmering. And they had always been there, I'm sure. But I think Soseki discovered tools and uh, kind of analytical language to express them in a way that nobody in Japan had done before. Uh, what, What novels... Should we go off and read? Because he wrote 15, I think, and I'm sure quite a few of our listeners won't have heard very much about him. If we had mm. to go and read a couple of books, novels by Soseki, what would you I, recommend and what, what would they be um, about? I don't know. I, mean, I, I value him as an essayist as well, so there are quite a lot of great essays and speeches that he gave. But if I were to pick one to just start, maybe... Uh, I Am A Cat. I was hoping you were going to say that. Explain, <laughs> explain that to us. Is I Am a Cat is a kind of a Swiftian satire. Uh, it's a story of a professor, a pompous professor, uh, whose domesticated cat actually describes the sort of uh, daily life of his uh, owner. The professor is heavily modeled on Soseki himself. So it kind of shows him at his best kind of making fun of himself. And also, I think the London years, of course, were quite essential because that really forced him to look at himself from a kind of distant perspective and kind of made him look at 
his own idiosyncrasies and pomposities. And one of the kind of first novels that he wrote and also one of the finest that he wrote. Well, I think that, uh, I hope that if, if this podcast does nothing else, people will be heading out to pick up for <laughs> I, I Am A Cat um, <laughs> by Soseki. Every Hotter, thank you so much for, for, for telling us all about him. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We had a piece there saying that um, Japanese fiction should be classed as before Marikami and after Marikami. I saw that, yeah. I wonder how you'd think Japan is a very old culture, it's a very proud culture. It doesn't feel that in literary terms it's that well known over here, the, the great writers. I read the Penguin book of short story writers relatively recently and there was stuff I'd vaguely heard of but not mm. that much and then there's Murakami and you think, well, yes, but, yeah, part, but outside of that, do you think that's, do you think we undervalue it? I mean, I don't know if, if I've read enough to make the judgment. Yeah, I don't know. I would I would say I haven't either. Um, Which is interesting. Is it, yeah, okay. Why have we not? Well, I mean, it's a relatively small country, I suppose, and until the is it the 18 late 1860s it didn't really have a national literature it was That's more right. kind of classical chinese wasn't it and then the edo period ended which i think was basically the same year as suzeki was born yeah marked the end, pretty much yeah. marked the end of the edo period uh, and then as far as i know it was only really after that that you started to have this national uh, literature forming and so, well, we were talking about it earlier, weren't we? Sort of trying to list the Japanese writers we, we do know. And Murakami was obviously there. And then Katsu Ishiguru, who is, you know, he left Japan when he was five. And yeah. so his formation, his education has been very British. And then I can name a modernist poet Which for you. Which I thought you. was cool. Go on, name <laughs> Sakutaru Hagiwara. Well um, and, and not really much else, but... I read, this is not very helpful, but I did read, a, I read Jay Rubin's um, translated, oh, yeah. uh, The Penguin have put out a book of Japanese short stories, which mm. Jay Rubin has translated uh, Murakami's introduced, and I, I, I read it. And there's one story in it, which I can't remember who it's by, but people have to Google it and find out. And it's about a man and a woman, and the man feels that he's let, his comrades have let him down. Uh, and his honour has been besmirched, mm. and he's very happily married to the to, to his wife. And he goes home, and they both they decide they're both going to commit seppuku. Okay, so immediately we're thinking of Mishima here. Uh, and he he just and then it describes over a period of about twenty pages the ritual before, it, and oh they both gosh. commit seppuku. Yeah, and the feel of. Uh, the disembowelment. The disembowelment. And of course, the, it is Mishima, because it is Mishima, isn't it? Because he went on to yeah. do it himself. Yeah. Uh, but that short story uh, is well worth tracking down if you've not read it. It's absolute because it's so, it's played so straight. And the kind of, at one level, it's a love story between two people who care about each other a lot. And another, it's a very weird ritualised decision to commit. Yeah, I remember seppuku. when I first heard someone told me about Yuki Mishima's seppuku. Oh, Harry Kiri. Yeah. Um, and it completely fascinated me because it was the first I'd heard and it's just such a strange and it's a great hard-hitting have cultural... You the, have, you, have you read the story? No, no, I haven't oh, read, read the story. Oh, read the story. I, it blew me. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's one of those yeah, things Yeah, I mean, that's that... what I mean. It really gets into your head, this idea of, of ritual dis- disembowelment because you feel you have to atone for your for your guilt and your yeah. disloyalty or, or something. It's crazy. Astounding. But listen, let's all, as a result of this podcast, go and read some Japanese fiction. Deal. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In recent years, there's been a much-talked-about rebirth in small independent publishing, a supposed backlash against the increasingly corporate mass of consecutively merged publishing houses. These new outfits have intriguing names that tell us something about their ethos. Fitzcarraldo, Le Fugitive, Jacaranda, for example. They have a tight focus, mission statements, to raise the bar of literature or to give a voice to the outsider, whether made so by gender or skin colour. A distinctive physical design is crucial, specific colours, formats, fonts and so on. Something to make the titles stand out and cohere. I suspect that most of these relative newcomers would happily recognise Virago, founded in 1973 by Marsha Rowe, Rosie Boycott and Carmen Khalil, as a forerunner in all of this. Virago books are instantly recognisable, especially, no doubt, to female readers, who covet the dark green spines emblazoned with that provocative bitten apple logo that might denote a book by Angela Carter or Rebecca West or Muriel Spark. The modern classic series to which those writers belong was conceived to, as Kate Chisholm puts it in a review this week marking 40 years of modern classics, to challenge the established male-dominated literary canon and rescue and rehabilitate forgotten works by women. After all, Virago was established to counter the male-operated machine of mainstream publishing and called itself a feminist press. Making the house a commercial success was, Carmen Khalil said, a feminist intervention. Interesting, then, that the word feminist has now been dropped and that the house has only really been independent for 13 years of its 45-year history. But that's all part of the chequered Virago story, which Kate is here to discuss with us now. Kate, let's start at the beginning with the conception of Virago. What, what was the context of its founding? How was it greeted by the wider establishment at the time? It's, it's hard to think back to feminism at that time, but it was very much Greenham Common, dungarees, bra burning, and sort of marches about the pill and abortion and things like that. So feminism was seen by, shall we say, the male-dominated 
literary world, which it was then, it's hard to conceive how male-dominated it would have been at that time. It was at that time. So it was it was greeted with suspicion by those people, but, but by readers like myself, it was like, wow, <laughs> this is what we, we need to have. Was it seen as a commercial opportunity by other people? Because this, this must have been more than 50% of the market is female. Was this seen as there's a scope here for this to be commercially a big deal, trying to actually focus on the needs of half of the market rather than, than not think about it at all? I suppose to, to that I would say that, that they did see it as commercial because although it's, it's just half the market, I don't know the statistics, but certainly I would say that women were much more likely to read novels at that time. I think that's, I think that's still true now. Yeah. I, th- I think it, it, they always have been a bigger chunk of the market. Mm. And I think particularly at that time, because of course there weren't other distractions, yeah, no. I read a lot at that time. And didn't watch much TV, didn't have a TV. So was it initially very successful? I mean, how successful was it when it launched? Were, were these the, the, big numbers? It was immediately successful, the classics series. The, the books that they were publishing, like Mary Chamberlain's book, Fen Women, and then the Sheila Rowbottoms, the Elaine Showalters, yeah. and those sort of books. Which were about feminism. A literature of their own was the big one, wasn't yes, it? Yes. Everyone remembers reading, I think. Yeah. All, all, all women will remember reading that if they yeah. studied English. Who writes the TLS still? Yes, exactly, yes. And Virago was always more successful than any of the others. That's what's quite interesting about it, and I didn't realise until I read this book quite how it was the model in which it was based. It always had, nearly always, it was a very short period, only 13 years, as you mentioned, where it was actually independent. The rest of the time it had backing, and it started off, I didn't realise this, but backed by quartet books of Naimatala. So it always had a very strong commercial basis and always was therefore more successful than the others and is the one that has survived. It got a lot of criticism because it wasn't therefore, if you like, strictly following feminist lines by allowing itself to have women, uh, men on the board and, and sort of men making decisions. That sort of gets to the heart of the, the Virago problem in a yes. sense, the reason why some people love it and, and some people would rather it be criticised more for that. It sort of intersects with that old feminist question of whether you you beat them by playing the game to their rules mm. by their following their rules or whether you play a completely different game yes and they it seems like virago did the former yes i think that's what came out strongly in Catherine riley's book when what i found so fascinating because i didn't really know this backstory at all i just knew reading the, the books every woman will have encountered that mm. that dilemma in a sense within their working life actually. And, and what do you think i mean presumably it's better that it succeeds and produces something than gets locked into an internal row about principles far better to be pragmatically out in the world yeah i, th- I think overall i would say that i i think probably where i would really agree with Karma Khalil was always was the literary worth Mm. so she wasn't going to publish anything unless it was a good book and that was the thing that mattered would matter and to me would be the principle upon which I would I would stick so I would not be happy publishing a book that was by a woman if it wasn't well done and it's now part of the zeitgeist presumably it's never been more zeitgeisty than it is now I mean with issues of, of of feminism higher on the agenda potentially than they've otherwise been female representation and, and that sort of thing I would say that we are living, we've gone backwards. Really? I would seriously say we've gone backwards. I think, it, I think it, again, it's a, it's a sort of um, contradictory in the sense that, yes, you've got far more women in positions of power than publishing. There was one point where the four of the big chiefs were all women. I don't think that's true anymore because some of them have, have moved away. But actually perceptions of women, how women are portrayed in advertising and in lots of ways, I think that a lot of what I grew up, thinking we must have or be appalled by representations of women have gone back a lot really yes i do since it, when it, i was young in literature or in publishing more generally more generally yeah uh in literature 
yeah, actually, some of the, the you know the sort of male novelists of like that. I I think they're they they are still portraying women in a really sort of archaic way, really. Would you name would you name names there? Would you? But for well, for instance, on on Chesil Peach, I think is based on a premise which is entirely false and is entirely okay. So this, mis- is it, this is misunders- in McEwan's be uh, a, a novel novel about a nineteen sixties yes. failed marital Which, night. Yes. Just made into a film. Yeah, just made into a film. I just think it's based on an entirely false view of women, which is sort of almost comes out of that period of the late sixties, early seventies, when men were quite defensive because women were really quite on the streets, and that's how it reads. Do you, and do you think the literary world is is still as male dominated as it ever was? I don't think it is, actually, no. We have a sort of 50-50 policy at the, 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 the TLS. Yes, because in, in the book she talks about the whole review debate and how just as recently, just a few years ago, the TLS, was it 18% of, of reviews were by, that, yeah. uh, were, were by women mm. as opposed to men. And actually, you start so you start really scrutinising current issues and you realise that that balance has... There is a big change going on now because I think women sort of in their sort of 30s are very different. The women are much more confident and are in big jobs and I think things are changing in that sense but in sort of media representations of women it's almost like the whole virgin whore sort of dichotomy has has almost got more fixed and more do you feel that there when you consume media I don't know it's difficult to say you won't be able to know whether it's got worse because you won't well, know exactly, before, but do you feel it's, an, it's a presence and also I remember I've come from a different country with a very different culture when it comes to women coming from Italy to here, yeah. that represents a massive shift. What, is it more deferential in Italy? No, no, things are much, much worse, worse in much Italy. Worse, much, okay, much yeah. worse in Italy. And maybe if things are changing in terms of representation, in terms of more powerful younger women, there'll be a lag, but those decision makers will change things perhaps in the next five, you know, Wonder mm. Woman, you know, the, the fact that there was the first film directed by a woman that made more than $800 million. The fact that, you know, in lots of broad Avengers style rep- you know comic book representations there are more female characters there are more and yet and yet they are always very good looking yes <laughs> yeah well that's possibly tr- that's possibly true of, of men in no sort of but you well. you still in 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 films and and in other media it, it's still you're still much more likely to see a not so attractive man being successful yeah, that's mm. probably true. Yes, and you know you've still got this whole sort of red carpet. That's been questioned more, I guess, whether successfully or not. At least in the ether. Yeah. It seems a person making a very boldly sexist statement or program or something would not go and challenge now in a way that, say, even in the nineties with the rise of lad mags, for example, you couldn't imagine a rise of lad mags now passing effectively without broad challenge. So that must I guess I guess the problem is that now you've had the the whole swing back so now you would be more likely to see a a mag that is doing what men's mags did to women to men you know that kind of ironic ironic of, yeah. objectification and I just don't see that anyone's winning out of that but I, I think that's exactly what I would yes and it 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 kind of ends up with that whole sort of the same kind of battle if you like going exactly. on and it's sort of displaced, but it's equally damaging to both. And no one's winning. No, one's, no one's winning. And we're all losing, actually, yes. out of it. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Joy, oh, joy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, it's a, it's, a, it's a downbeat ending, but it's a fascinating uh, subject. Thank you so oh, much for, oh, for, for, for coming in. Thank you. That's all we have time for, alas. Our thanks to Eri Hotter, Kate Chisholm and Toby Lishtig. Do make sure you're subscribing to the paper. This week we have a special section on the Pacific region, covering Indonesia, the Philippines and even West Coast American hippie anthropology. 
Next week, we'll be talking film, so join us for that. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.